welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the challenges we face, the impacts they are having on society, and what we can do to help solve them. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Well, We Got This in Conversation. You're about to listen to a conversation between PhD candidate George Warren and Ragnar Lovsted, Professor of Risk Management from the Department of Geography. George's research looks at how risk is communicated and how this in turn impacts public perception. So in the case of the COVID-19 pandemic, how is the risk of the virus being communicated to us? How does the government's communication strategy shape our sense of the risk? And how does this vary across different countries? Now, there are multiple ways at looking at communications around the risk of COVID. The virus could very well be perceived as catastrophic. There's been more than 5 million deaths globally from the virus and over 146,000 deaths in the UK alone. For some individuals, you might find that you feel like there's nothing you can do about the virus, especially once you have it. For others, you may feel in control of whether you get COVID in the first place, by social distancing, by wearing masks, etc. Then there's the fact that COVID is new and we're still learning about it. It's also invisible and there's a delayed onset of symptoms. This increases uncertainty in people's minds and our perception of how at risk we are. These elements are all important in influencing people's decision-making in the face of uncertainty. So how well are government strategies capturing these elements? Is our government helping us to feel safe, alert, or confused? George and Ragnar discuss the best and worst practices from government communications on the risk of COVID, including the notorious Cummingsgate in the UK, and the sense that there is one rule for us and one rule for them. Here's what George has to say. Welcome to this discussion on COVID-19 risk communication in Europe, the good, the bad, and the ugly. My name is Ragnar Lofsted, Professor of Risk Management here in the Department of Geography at King's College in London. And with me, we have George Warren. George Warren is one of my PhD students. And what we've been doing then is looking at five countries, Switzerland, Sweden, the UK, France, and Germany. I'm very grateful that George speaks a number of languages aside from English, both German and French, and of course, Ragnar, me, I helped in with the Swedish. We have now published papers in peer-reviewed journals. So far, we up to three, George? We have three, and the fourth one has just been accepted. The proofs are back in the hands of the publisher. Perfect. So we have three and one forthcoming. We're very pleased about this. And they've been well-referenced and very much well-downloaded. And there's a lot of appetite for this because what we found, we've been struck by George, is how different nations have different strategies to COVID-19. You know, in terms of both a risk communication as well as risk management, with the Sweden, with Sweden, in my view, George being one of the outliers. And before we discuss, before we start this podcast, what is risk communication, George? Risk communication fundamentally is the science of how we communicate information about risks to people. Um, who are experiencing those risks. So risk perception is how people perceive risks. People, for example, are much more worried about involuntary risks than voluntary ones, more worried about unfamiliar risks than familiar ones, and they're much more worried about risks that basically have killed more people than less people. 
and, and, and a number of variables. And of course, this is very important for COVID, but this COVID, so COVID was as a pandemic, it was seen to be unfamiliar, <clears throat> and it may be far to kill a lot of people, and we were not ready for it, and people basically were very, very worried about it. In terms of risk communication, is how do you communicate the risks associated with pandemic? How do we go about doing that? You know, are we going to be a top-down communication, a dialogue communication, or a bottom-up communication? And what, what I think we found here, George, primarily, was much more top-down top communication, especially in countries, for example, like Sweden, and also, also to argue for the UK. And then we have risk management, is how do you manage the risks? What do you put in place? Social distancing, for example, like George and I are doing right now, we're two meters apart from each other approximately, having face coverings indoors here at King's College is standard. And of course, washing hands. I washed my hands before I came here, for example, just, just now. It's also very, very important. And now, George, I'm going to hand that to you. <clears throat> what are some considerations that we need to reflect on when we consider what's best and worst case examples of risk communication? We have three main characteristics uh, within the pragmatic function of risk communication. These are the audience, the message and the messenger. And it's important to consider it um, in this context. For example, audience. Um, here, when we're thinking about uh, the risk communication strategy, what we need to understand in the context of the audience is what shapes risk perceptions. What are the people like? What influences the way they think about things? What are the individual characteristics? We also have the messenger element. Is the messenger trusted? Are they both trustworthy and competent? Are they putting forward risk management strategies in a uh, competent, fair, transparent way? And then thirdly, we have the message attributes. Um, and these are content-based evaluations. So thinking about uh, what's in the message. Is it relevant to the people that they're communicating to? What is the framing like? Is it emotive? Are we trying to scare people? Are we trying to make people happy? There are different frames that could be used in this way. Are the messages over time consistent and clear? Um, and how are we communicating? What kind of medium are we using to get the message to people? Because of course, different media have different ways of contacting different people. In the case of COVID-19, from our own research, wide-scale science-based risk communication strategies have been largely underutilized throughout the pandemic across most of the five nations studied. And there's been a real focus on, as Ragnar said, a top-down messaging strategy across the board. Um, that being said, there are many individual examples where communication has aligned with best practice, as alongside many where it's gone against it. So you're not going to ask you then, <clears throat> what kind of best practice approaches have we seen? So <clears throat> I think there are there are three examples I'll pull out from our from our uh, our papers. Although I would recommend that everyone go and read that to learn more and in more. I mean, they're open well. access. Aren't they're they? all open <clears throat> access and available on the Journal of Risk Research. The first one I will point to is uh, revolving around the idea of reliance on experts and the relationship in the public eye between politicians and experts in making decisions and communications around COVID-19 policy. So especially in Germany and the UK, they've really relied on experts in the field alongside politicians in briefings to communicate statistics, decisions on uh, restrictions that they may put in place, and also in terms of explaining the rationale behind them. Um, in the UK, for example, um, as many will have seen, the press briefings that were almost daily at some point throughout the pandemic, um, 
always have experts present. So uh, Patrick Valance and Chris yeah, Lee. You think of those types, um, Jonathan Van Tam as well. Yeah. Um, these people that have gained a public standing and now people know who they are. They're, they're, they're rock stars from Fragnar. Yeah, they are. Um, and so them being there in the room with the politician provides an air of legitimacy and expertise in what's being said and provides the public with the idea that the policy, whether we agree with it or not, has been agreed based on science um, and based on scientific um, recommendations. Alongside that in Germany, they have had, at the start of the pandemic, the natural advantage of Angela Merkel as a communicator. She's a scientist, isn't she? Yeah, she's both a scientist and a politician. Um, and so in that role, she was seen as a trusted figure because she understood what she was talking about, um, alongside having scientists feed into her decision making and were often present during the briefings. Um, and so especially at the start of the pandemic, this was really effective um, in the first couple of months of, of uh, the pandemic in 2020. Yeah. One exa interesting example of best practice uh, from early in the pandemic actually involves France. Um, although they haven't necessarily been the best throughout the pandemic, there are isolated instances in which they've been very effective. And one of those is involving the use of visualizations in the way they communicate risk at a geographical level. Um, in France, they employed a traffic light heat map uh, during their briefings to display geographical variations in COVID-19 risk. Um, you could have, for example, three colors, I think they used mainly. It was red, amber, and green, like a traffic light. And it would display the level, the number of cases per 100,000, as well as uh, they had separate um, visualizations for number of deaths and number of hospitalizations across different parts of the country, divided into their local regions, which gave people a local flavor and understanding for what was happening in their local area. Um, traffic light systems uh, as a way of visualizing risk are actually quite commonplace. I mean, people mostly know them from buying uh, ready-made lasagnas at the supermarket and seeing yeah. the red blinking at them. Everywhere. Uh, everywhere red, maybe one one or amber and you tell yourself it's fine. Um, and so it's, it's an intuitive way of thinking about risk. We know that green is a good color, red is a dangerous color. Mm -hmm. And these, this proved really effective and so much so that it was actually taken up by most of the public health authorities that were communicating throughout the pandemic. Um, and I think is even in place today. I yeah, think. it is. Yeah. Um, it is a very effective strategy. The third best practice approach uh, that I'd like to pick out from our research um, involve, revolves around uh, communication at the start of the pandemic done by the UK government um, around the use of the stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives. Very simple and very clear message. Exactly. Very simple, very clear. But on top of it being clear, we know we know what we have to do. We have to stay at home. Very simple. We also know why we're having to do this. It's in the aim of protecting the NHS, which in turn saves lives. This is very clear and actually led to widespread <clears throat> compliance at the start of the pandemic with the rules, with over 90% of people understanding exactly what was expected of them at that time. Alongside that, the use of the NHS in this messaging is important because it, as we, as a Brit, we have a strong affiliation. And with we trust NHS. We trust the NHS. We don't want it to fail. Mm. And so if there's a way in which we can help them not fail and succeed, and that saves lives, then mm. it's a very easy decision to be made. So absolutely. Now we go for the best practice. Now we're going to the worst practice. Where have nations really been poor in their communication? Do you have any examples of that? 
I have plenty of examples, Ragnar. Okay. It, as as both Ragnar and myself know, uh, and I'm sure many people listening know, it has not necessarily been the uh, the smoothest communication strategy across it's the board. It's been a pretty rough countries. passage, I would say. Yeah. So I've got plenty to choose from. I've gone for a few key ones that I think uh, people might relate to and find particularly interesting. Um, we just talked before about the idea of consistent and clear messaging. Um, and although the UK succeeded with consistent messaging at the start of the pandemic with the stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives motto and communication strategy, later on, it's been found quite lacking and inconsistent in its approach. Uh, this has happened in a number of ways, for example, regarding um, communication around whether we whether travel would be allowed over summer holidays, um, but most importantly, around leading by example. Um, which is a fundamental, um, fundamentally important relationship to have between the, ex the experts and the leaders um, who put in place these policies following the same advice that they give to the public. Otherwise, you're not going to have any buy-in with the public when it comes to uh, restricting movement, for example. And in the UK's case, the uh, what is now named Cummingsgate, the Dominic Cummings scandal. He was a special uh, advisor to the prime minister, wasn't he? Yeah, exactly. Um, and he, he decided that he needed to drive to a small village called Barnard Castle to um, help his eyesight from, to, work, to work out if uh, he could drive back to London from Durham um, against COVID rules and while he had COVID himself, um, which, as you can imagine, uh, didn't go down particularly well with the public. Oh. This, alongside many other examples, including a Scottish MP getting on a train despite knowing that she had COVID or symptoms of COVID. Has, coming down to the House of Commons. Yeah, coming down to the House of Commons. So there's many, many examples in the UK. And this is problematic because it fundamentally erodes the idea that we're all in this together. And it creates this concept that there is one a kind of one rule for us, another rule for them kind of approach. That means that at the end of the day, people don't end up following the mostly voluntary or recommended rules that are put forward by government, especially later on in the pandemic. Alongside the inconsistency in communication through leading by example and the inconsistency in what actions are being taken, there's also just been a pure inconsistency in the UK around the kinds of rules that have been in place and confusion around that. So in our research, we point out, and it's probably more since we wrote this, but between March 2020 and January 2021, the rules changed over 60 times. That's insane. I mean, how how we managed to get on during these times, knowing exactly what we were supposed to do when, um, is is quite something. On top of this idea of uh, inconsistency uh, in the context of the rules, um, the main message changed, and that itself was ambiguous. We changed from this very good effective messaging strategy of stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives into something more ambiguous in the form of stay alert, control the virus, save lives. Ragnar, do you know how to control the virus? No, certainly not. Uh, what do you mean by staying alert? What, is that what, what mean? does that mean? I, re I remember this, this uh, became the scene of international and internet mockery. Um, it, we went from something very simple to follow to something very ambiguous in the UK. And that, that is really problematic when it comes to getting people to either comply with rules or have the goodwill to want to help um, in the context of reducing the spread of COVID-19. There's also been inconsistency um, across different parts of the country 
Um, for example, in Germany and Switzerland, they have fe- they are a federated states, um, and they don't have one set COVID nineteen policy strategy. It's decided at the Bundesländer or the cantonal level, the state level for both of those countries. Whereas in the UK, for example, especially in England and in France, especially these very centralized systems with very centralized approaches. And what that meant in practice is that in France, that was there was one rule based on one set of criteria that were simple to follow. In Germany and Switzerland, you had varying rules and varying communication methods between different states. You could travel from Bavaria and go to Stuttgart in Baden-Württemberg, and you'd find a completely different set of rules, a completely different way of communicating with the public. And we saw that, for example, I mean, I'm doing my sabbatical in Potsdam in Germany, and in Potsdam, surgical face masks are required. You can't have cloth ones. But if you go into Berlin, you can have a special filter mask, and basically Berlin is only 30 kilometers away. And of course, people then will be confused, won't they? Yeah, exactly. Um, And it's a double-edged sword because, of course, this system has come about because it's more localized, because Germany and Switzerland, there are statelets within a state in that context. And so that you could say that it's more appropriate for for their local leaders to be communicating with them. But of course, at a national level, this can lead to some confusion and ideas of fairness or unfairness between the states if there's no one set strategy. It's something very interesting to think about further, I think. Absolutely. Sure inconsistencies are always difficult. Exactly. And I think as we've outlined as well, um, another big failure has been around the main use of top-down, one unidirectional messaging around COVID. It's been very much um, centralized leaders or local leaders telling the public what they think they should do in a way that doesn't, is not particularly led by dialogue or the desire for participation and is very much in the aim of having public adherence or compliance with rules as against trying to come up or develop a strategy that is um, that is deliberative, that is public-led in that way. And on top of this, this has particularly had an impact on minoritized groups especially, um, who already feel disenfranchised. And they're the ones also who got COVID. I mean, exactly. I mean, in Sweden, for example, the Somalia subpopulation, there were a lot of COVID cases among them initially. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that's something that has been, sadly, quite consistent in a lot of countries, where the idea of COVID as an immediate crisis has met, meant that central governments have try to focus on this kind of top-down approach as against thinking of COVID as a longer-term risk in which we need to engage with the public, understand where they're coming from. Um, And so we've seen a lot of that in the context of uh, adhering with, um, for example, mask mandates on public transport, which does not happen right now. No, not in the UK. I mean, coming into London this morning, uh, not many people wearing masks basically on public transport. So that was very pessimistic, George. So, so what kind of solutions or recommendations can we then now offer policymakers on the back end of this? Yes, I think based on the work we've done, there are a number of recommendations. And so we've picked out a few, I think, that are the most relevant based on what we've discussed. I think the first is really to stick to the science of risk communication. We've seen a lot of experts saying they're following the science and whether they are or not is up for debate. Um, but I think that um, in the context of the commu- risk communication strategies across these five countries, they really have not been tapping into the expertise of the risk communication field and understanding what it takes to really communicate in an effective way with 
the public that they represent. I think on top of that, we need to keep communication clear and consistent, especially when we're communicating in an uncertain space or around a new risk. I think it's really important that um, communication is as clear as possible, consistent as possible, and follows a clear, defined strategy, if possible. That's predictable as well. Predictable, yes. As you said, we need to move away from having solely top-down, one-way messaging in favor of a communication strategy that is more deliberative in nature, that brings in the voices of the public Mm -hmm. that are being represented by the leaders who are putting forward recommendations or laws around COVID to protect us. And I think fundamentally, one of the things that's been especially uh, problematic in the UK, but has been seen elsewhere, is the idea of needing to lead by example. At COP26, we've seen Boris Johnson not wearing a mask. In Glasgow, with 25,000 individuals. With David Attenborough in the audience. We need to be protecting him. And he's old. Exactly. I mean, I hope he's had his booster shot. Right. Wow. And same thing in the House of Commons, of course, too. Exactly. Especially the Conservatives were not wearing masks for many months. Yeah. And it's interesting how that's become a polarized political debate as well. Which is really unfortunate. It shouldn't be a polarized debate at all. You should basically be following the signs. Indoor space, you're wearing face coverings, especially in the house, especially when you're debating in the House of Commons, when people are raising their voices and there's no social distancing. Exactly. I don't know how you feel, George, but over the past year and a half, I think we've been on a fascinating journey. Yes, the the pandemic has been horrible. Yes, we've not been able to see our loved ones. Uh, Yes, we haven't been to our offices the first time, been to my office now since uh, last March 2020. But in terms of research, working on the pandemic, comparing countries, I think we've learned a lot how different nations do different things. The, the first project that I was involved with really helped to put the, to, to make it feel like I was able to do something about the pandemic at a certain point. I spent months at home doing very little, just doing my PhD research. And um, if I, I feel like it was, it was a nice way to kind of start the process of being able to act on it, um, which was particularly useful. And I mean, after that, of course, there's the funding element of it too. But in terms of the motivation, I think it is really fascinating how different nations have approached uh, the issue of COVID-19 because it is a global topic. And there's been so many different ways about which governments and um, scientists have put forward ideas of what we should be doing um, in terms of you know, non-pharmaceutical interventions, in terms of pharmaceutical interventions, and seeing that difference across uh, national borders was something I was really interested in looking at in the longer term. Yeah, I tend to agree. It's also about basically using our expertise in the area of risk perception and risk communication on a topic, on a pandemic that's actually happening in real time. I don't know if you feel, George, but basically in terms of risk communication, I think early on in the pandemic, us risk communicators were not really part of the equation. Yeah, I mean, I was shouting on my TV every day at the way in which especially the UK government was communicating to its people. Um, and and so I feel like it, it was it was useful and it continues to be useful for his communicators to be involved in the process of government communication. Absolutely, especially now with the vaccine rollout and booster shots and the like. We, we need more risk communication rather than less risk communication. Exactly. It goes on and on. When I was asked in May to be part of this government cabinet office, uh, Foreign Commonwealth Office, basically advisory group of international best practice, I was thinking about it. And my 
my wife and my daughter said, what are you thinking with this for, Ragnar? Just a no-brainer. you got to do this. You, gotta, you, you have to help here. This is basically you know, part of your duty as a professor, as an academic at King's College. You need to go here and help government get the pandemic right. And I think, George, we have done something here. We have helped. I mean, I can tell you the four papers, three plus, four from forthcoming, four papers, they are being downloaded. They are being read by basically UK government officials and governments in other countries and it's getting attention. Mm -hmm. So I think we are doing a good thing and we are helping trying to get make make it a better, you know, pandemic from a risk communication perspective. And I think on that note, we should probably thank both Professor Kate Schreckenberg, head of this department, who actually funded you, George, as well as Phil Hubbard, who also also co-funded you early on in the first few papers. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the Department of Geography for funding this, I find, feel, very important research and may long continue. And that note, I say thank you very much for listening, and I hope you found this interesting. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Well We Got This In Conversation podcast with George Warren and Ragnar Lofsted. You can find out more about their research in the Journal of Risk Research or on the King's website. Today's episode was brought to you by the School of Global Affairs and was produced by Julia Stopowska.